Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. <laughs> oh, Lord, that was funny. Right. Sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Thursday, October 13th, 2022. I gave myself a countdown, and in the middle of the countdown, I felt like Bruce Springsteen. I articulated that point, and just the notion of me being like Bruce Springsteen is so far-fetched, I started cracking up. Uh, anyway, uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, Spoda's having a Ben Drosky show as I speak. It's Thursday, October 13, 2022. Here's the headlines in the New York Times that are apropos to absolutely everything going on in this country today uh, and uh, the tactics employed by MAGA as they try to seize control. And these are pretty good tactics, if I must say so myself, you know, minus uh, the obvious facts that they're like really awful behavior. But uh, anyway, Sandy Hook lies will cost Jones about one billion dollars. Alex Jones, uh, the uh, YouTube liar, uh, made up that story about uh, the Sandy Hook uh, children not being killed, uh, said the whole thing was a made up attack in order to uh imperil gun rights in this country. What a joke, as if gun rights aren't like sanctified in this country. Uh, he played that card over and over again, uh, and the survivors of the children who were murdered uh, filed suit, and yesterday uh, a verdict came down. Um, $1 billion, close to $1 billion. He, of course, is uh, pounding his chest and saying, oh, I'm not paying it. They're not going to get it for me. And then just like continuing his lies and distortions just sort of like poisoning absolutely everything, even the notion of truth. Uh, right next to that, uh, the hidden hand guiding conservative causes. This is like a cousin to what Alex Jones does. A uh, fabulously wealthy uh, businessman in America named Leonard Leo is funding all kinds of outfits that are going to come up with all kinds of crazy crackpot schemes to justify the stuff the Republicans are doing and pouring money uh, into all sorts of election campaigns from the bottom of the ballot to the top of the ballot. MAGA is not quitting, folks. You thought you were going to win in 2020 and then take like a little holiday? MAGA's not playing, ladies and gentlemen. Wake up, Dems. All right, without further ado, uh, I'm going to bring on my uh, distinguished guest, and I know he has a lot to say about all these things. But he's got, I want to start with a little curveball with my distinguished guest. So first, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. All right, Ben, it's great to be back on the show. Um, I'm David Ferris. I'm Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University, uh, contributing writer at The Week and Newsweek, and the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And vis-a-vis uh, -vis Alex Jones, all I can say is that dude should just be grateful um, but none of the Sandy Hook parents have taken matters into their own hands. You know what I mean? It's like, you're, you're getting off with a billion dollar fine. My friend, you're lucky. Uh, what a scumbag, you know? Anyway, over to you, Ben. Sorry. Oh, total scumbag. Uh, and uh, the fact that he's viewed with any kind of credibility anywhere in the world uh, is a sign of how far we've fallen. 
I mean, he's just a scumbag is the best word. And he continuing. He's like pounding his chest. And I don't know what happened at Sandy Hook. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, sad. Uh, the other guy is just, is just as scary, Leonard Leo. I don't know if you follow him. Uh, he kicked in a billion dollars uh, to fund all kinds of political campaigns from one side of the country to the other. Uh, there's all kinds of different forces at play in the political movement that I call MAGA. You know, I, I, I we're not going to start. I mean, I wanted to go somewhere else with this, but I mean, a lot more here. I'm going to get your thoughts on this. I mean, I just it's in some ways they have their own juggling act that they're doing. I watch it on play on display here in Illinois, where a MAGA candidate, Darren Bailey, is running for governor against J.B. Pritzker, uh, and he's total MAGA. If you know anything about Darren Bailey's career before he got the Republican nomination and geared up for November's general, you will know that he's as outrageous MAGA as anybody else in the country. Uh, but he kind of like has to clean up his act a little bit. It's so bizarre to watch him try to like distance himself in any way he can from an extreme anti-abortion position or extreme uh, election denier position uh, and just concentrate on crime, crime, crime. But you, you get what I'm saying, David? It's like they have their own mini juggling act that they're uh, undergoing right now. Yeah, sure. I mean, they they um, they have to play to the MAGA base while simultaneously trying to win an election in Illinois, which is not <laughs> not an easy thing to do. Um, and uh, you know, Democrats are not always helping their own cause here. I was I happened to be in New Hampshire over the weekend, um, where I was. You know, in Illinois, you don't really you don't get to see a ton of national political advertising <laughs> the same way that you do in other places. Um, so I, I saw a bunch of ads for Maggie Hassan's uh, re-election campaign, the Democrat to the Senate there. And uh, if I had just like woken up from a coma and I didn't know who she was, I honestly would have thought she was a Republican um, based, based on the ads that she was running there. You know, um, tough on crime, uh, more money for law enforcement, more money for border security. Um, just sort of depressingly playing into the Republicans' hands um, in terms of like this hysteria that they're whipping up about crime and um, this massive uh, crisis at the border, like we're being invaded or something. Um, and so it's, uh, I don't know if this is where you wanted me to take this question, but I, I, I think it's it's worth noting that's, that the Democrats so frequently respond to the Republican propaganda operations exactly as they want us to. Um, which is by talking about it and taking it seriously and, and acquiescing to their terms of the debate um, rather than sort of leaning into what should be the core positions of the party, right? Like I would rather see, first of all, it's just absurd, right? And there's, there's hardly any crime in New Hampshire. It's not a border state. There's no refugee crisis there. Like, who, why is this an issue? Why are you running ants about this? It's so, it's so deranged. Um, and I would rather see Maggie Hassan get out there and be like, um, you know, my values are that we, you know, we help refugees in need, right? Like we should find a way um, to, to, to reduce the, the aggregate demand in, in Venezuela to come here by, by helping to improve political conditions there or uh, expanding our capacity at the border to, to help people in need, because that actually pulls well. Um, pe people respond, people do think that the United States should, should take in um, a certain number of refugees when there's a crisis, especially near us. Um, and instead, we're, we're just like sort of uh, leaning directly into the idea that the United States is in the, in the grip of a, a massive crime wave, which is uh, there's just not a ton of evidence that that's true. You know, so it's I don't know. That was kind of depressing to me. Um, and so I just feel like sometimes we're doing MAGA's job for them. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, I'm glad you went there. We're going to get back to what the curveball I was going to throw, which really isn't a curveball since it's like. Technically, he threw the curveball first, but whatever. I'm getting all twisted. But absolutely, I've seen this my whole life. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And and I know that people view me as like this lunatic on the left. But when I say something I'm about to say, so right now, Gregory, uh, Governor Abbott of um, Texas is sending up busloads of uh, refugees or immigrants uh, from Texas to Chicago. Every day, a new one comes in, new busloads come in. And I'm like, well, this, we should welcome this as an opportunity. Now, I'm not being facetious in any way. You and I, David, spent many shows during the pandemic talking about how Chicago has sort of been carved out by the pandemic, how like the downtown is empty, how businesses are really hurting. Uh, we talk so much about declining population in the city of Chicago, how neighborhoods, uh, this housing is, not, like the housing is empty, you know? Uh, 
what more do we need than an influx of people who are looking to work? I, I'm like, hello, <laughs> thank you, Governor Abbott. You know, you're an idiot. And but it, it is so politically unacceptable, politically incorrect in the worst way of the terms for a Democrat to talk the way I just talked to say, yes, we welcome you. This is great opportunity for us. This is how our country has thrived for years and years. David, I don't understand. I, won't, I don't understand why Democrats, I know why they run away from they, their core beliefs and convictions, even when it could benefit them. I it truly, and the notion that in New Hampshire, she's talking about borders. The closer border is Canada. Hello. <laughs> I promise to keep Justin Trudeau out of this country. I promise. Okay. <laughs> And so if she loses to that lunatic, oh, my goodness, uh, you know, uh, the election denier up there, who, by the way, the day after he won the primary, talk about uh, Darren Bailey flip-flopping, said, well, after having spent a full year and a half denying Joe Biden's victory, said, I've looked at the evidence and come to the conclusion that Biden actually won. I'm like, what evidence did you discover in a day and a half? <laughs> Yeah, the, the new line coming from like Republican Senate candidates um, is like, well, I don't actually think it was stolen, but it was really mean that Twitter said that we couldn't talk about Hunter Biden's laptop. And uh, it was unlawful the way that they changed the uh, election laws prior to the to the election to allow people to vote and not die of the coronavirus when they were voting, uh, even though the state legislatures and the governors agreed on these things. So they're like, yeah, it was definitely uh, rigged. Um, because, uh, because, uh, uh, you know, because, uh, Facebook said we couldn't post that story about Hunter Biden. Uh, otherwise we would have won, you know, the, the, the sad, desperate attempt to make Hunter Biden a thing on, on the right. is just like an ongoing mystery to me. I have no idea what they think they're going to get out of it. You know, like the events in question were like nine years ago. No one cares. He's like a sad, troubled man. Um, there, there was this thing going around the other day about the, the voicemail that Biden left, that Joe Biden left for Hunter. And he was like, you know, I love you. I love you, buddy. You know, uh, uh, I don't know what's going on. You need help, uh, but I love you and I'm here for you. And I'm like, what? what's bad about that? You know, I, I mean, <laughs> Hunter Biden's obviously got a lot of problems, but like, are you supposed to not love your kids anymore? Because, because they, they, they went, they went bad. I, I just, uh, I just don't understand the sort of like the moral universe on the far right anymore. Uh, it's like pro-family until someone shows love. And then that's woke, I guess. I guess it's woke to love your children. Fellas, is it is it woke to to feel joy and love when you look at your children, even when they're making bad decisions? I don't even know. I don't know anymore. These guys have all lost their minds. Well, we'll get to the moral universe of the Republican Party. Uh, but I think what the Republicans have settled on as a tactic, uh, there's one of their tactics is constantly feed the biases of their base. And so the refrain that the Hunter Thompson bias feeds is the notion that there's a double standard and they're the victims of a giant conspiracy run by liberals. Uh, and if you push them really far, they'll say Jews. Uh, so if that's a constant, just con you're absolutely correct. They, they probably figure that nobody uh, a swing voter or an independent-minded Democrat will go their way on that issue, but just keep feeding the base, keep them roiled up uh, with nonsense, and uh, you can depend on them uh, to show up. And I do think as if they keep pushing at something long enough, it moves. This and we talk about this all the time, David. It moves the center. So pretty soon you'll see independent people. Uh, voters saying, well, you know, what about Hunter Biden? <laughs> even if they don't even know, what about Hunter Biden? You know what I'm saying? It like right. pushes. Yeah, no, they, they're very good at this. I mean, they've been, uh, you know, the the uh, the campaign of uh, yeah, TV celebrity doctor, Dr. Oz, has been for months, like, pushing the idea that, uh, that John Fetterman can't serve because he had a stroke. Um, and they just, they work the refs, and they worked the refs for months and months and months uh, until NBC ran this like hit piece interview with him um, where the reporter like interviewed him and he wanted to have closed captioning to, to, to understand her because he's having these auditory processing issues um, after the stroke. And then she went, you know, so they taped the interview and then 
while she was introducing the interview, she was like, yeah, I don't think he really understood me when we were making small talk in the green room. Um, <laughs> you know, which is just like, it's just like, I mean, the whole thing could have been scripted by the Oz campaign. Um, and, and it's just, uh, all just a, like a profound attack on people with disabilities. But, you know, when you scream at the mainstream media for long enough and demand that they do something, eventually they'll, they'll, somebody will dance and play along, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to put them in cages and call them the enemy of the people. Um, but sometimes, sometimes they need to think a little bit harder about why they're doing things, um, and, and to what sort of incentives they're responding to. Oh my goodness. You're really pushing my buttons today. One of my favorite topics. And I, and I say this, I were, I've spent my entire career writing for an alternative newspaper that I've been exempt from this kind of pressure by and large, because the whole thing about an alternative in it, newspapers, let the guy go. You know, I mean, that's why we're an alternative newspaper. Okay. So they better, I've been very fortunate. They basically let me go. But every now and then I come up against it. The various editors down through the years have their, their own biases. I remember I had an editor years ago. Uh, I was very much against the Iraqi war. Uh, this particular editor was in for, favor of the Iraqi war and would try to deter me from writing articles about it or, or put things in there that like, I didn't believe in. And I'm like, you write your own article. I mean, just go, you go ahead. You got, you got a typewriter, go write your own article or your own column. But I, listen, I, uh, oh, I had on a guest yesterday, Salim Akil. I urge everybody to check it out. It was a fantastic interview, if I must say so myself. Uh, but he talked about his days as a columnist for the Tribune, where they were always suggesting that he might, you know, why don't you put a little an attack uh, in your column uh, against uh, Republicans, just to let them know that you're, like, fair. I'm like, what? Why? <laughs> what, what is with you? Why? I... I'm making a fair assessment of, I'm sorry, put a little tack at Democrats to make it seem like you're fair. And so why the need, the compulsion to play that? Well, left liberals say this, and but conservatives say this, like you're a man in the middle and you don't, well, you don't have a mind of your own. Uh, I, I feel this is a major flaw uh, in, in journalism. It has been my entire life. I don't know. I've never been to journalism school, David. I don't know if like there's any professors at, at journalism schools that are addressing this, you know? Um, I think that my guess is the journalism professors are pretty frustrated with it too, you know, the, the sort of incessant, you know, both sides-ism of, uh, of, of the mainstream media and, the, you know, the compulsion for clicks and um, damaging stories against Democrats um, when they're, I, you know, to me, there's much more existential issues in play in this election than whether John Fetterman's going to need closed captioning to do his job in the Senate. Um, and so the the focus on that is 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 really reminiscent of the email stuff. You know, the ten thousand stories they ran about Hillary Clinton's emails um, when the when we had the opportunity to have the first liberal Supreme Court in my entire life, um, but instead everybody was like, so what was her, you know? What was on Anthony Weiner's laptop? Just like, you know, complete diversions from anything that's remotely important. Um, but he, and he can't blame the people, right? Like people are going to click on what the what the Times puts on above the fold. Um, but they too often, I think, focus on these process stories or these personality stories or these like sort of personal angle stories at the expense um, of digging really deep into what's at stake in the election. Um, and so people don't necessarily have a sense of what their vote will mean or what sitting out the election will mean. Um, you know, we got this big, uh, we got the report today where, you know, inflation's still a problem nationally. And it's, you know, top, top of the top of every newspaper in the country. Um, tomorrow is going to be this uh, a September inflation increase. And it's like, you know, sure. I mean, elect Republicans. I don't know. They don't have any ideas for fixing inflation, but they will definitely fix the problem of you ever having to vote in a free election again. You know, so uh, that's up to you. If you want to take a buck off your bacon and never and never uh, be able to change your leadership again. God bless. You know, have at it. No, they. Yeah, I, I, that's a whole other discussion. I don't want to head down that uh, as um, important as it is inflation as a political tool in an election. Uh, it works. I've seen it work both ways. Uh, it worked in favor of Democrats in the ancient year of 1976 when Gerald Ford was caught up and he had his whip inflation now campaign. 
there's a certain amount of helplessness that presidents of either party have when it comes to uh, inflation. And you have to ride it out a lot. You know this, David. You studied it a lot more than I have. Uh, but to make it like a campaign theme, you know, like the Dem- Republicans have a solution that the Democrats have uh, don't have uh, is a joke. And, but uh, that's uh, politics today. All right. Let me get to what I call the curveball, which is really not a curveball. Uh, an excellent essay, in my humble opinion, uh, that you wrote for Newsweek. Um, Tulsi Gabbard and the Democrats quality control problem. And um <laughs> Tulsi Gabbard, of course, uh, the former Democratic uh, congresswoman from Hawaii uh, and was a uh, presidential candidate uh, back in 2020. I don't know if she made it to actual 2020, definitely 2019, uh, has announced that she's leaving the Democratic Party. (laughs) Well, to which I say thank you. Um, I never thought of her as really a great Democrat uh, in any way. Uh, But you have some great riffs in here. And uh, I'll allow you the um, uh, the opportunity to explain your theme, your thesis, and what your overall point is, besides the wisecracks, of which there are many uh, in this essay. I urge everybody to check it out. But let me just read this part to you, because um, you might have been writing about me uh, in this sentence when I, <laughs> I just laughed out loud. So here we go. The 2019-2020 Democratic primary debates might have been fun at the time, liberals desperate for a breather from the Trump administration's perpetual debasement machine, but they have aged into a complete disaster for the party. I, I, yes, I am one of those. I don't call myself a liberal, but I was definitely one of those guys who couldn't get enough of the 2019, the summer of 2019 in my eyes, David, is like the good old days. Ah, yes, 20 Democrats on stage. Tim Ryan's plan about Medicare. I need to hear more. Bernie railing and ranting, and and then all of a sudden, somewhere Bloomberg comes in. I mean, you you're uh, going back and just reminding me of what that that early phase of the 2020 political campaign was. Brought back a certain smile. It was pre pandemic, by and large. You know, world was a different place. Um, so anyway, explain uh, your thesis about the Tulsi Gabbard's role. Uh, and uh, the, in that debate process and the weakness it shows about the Democrats. Sure. I mean, the, the way that the Democrats constructed the 2020 primary debate season was in large part a response to lingering <clears throat> dissatisfaction with how the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, conducted itself in the 2015-2016 campaign cycle. Like There was a sense that the debate schedule, um, maybe even the debate, set up and and various other factors were um, either openly or mistakenly (laughs) um, manipulated to to favor Hillary Clinton over over Bernie Sanders. Right. Um, And there was a there was a lingering um, sense of of distrust and and resentment um, among a, a fairly significant subset of voters that Democrats really need to win elections, they need for those voters to turn out and to support Democrats if they have any hope of winning. Um, and so, you know, the party understandably undertook a review of some of its processes and, and decided, I think, to dramatically loosen the qualification requirements to get into the debates in the first place. All of which I think is understandable, right? I mean, like the the, the 2016 debates were, it was Clinton and Sanders. Um, you remember Martin O'Malley? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the the uh, governor of uh, Maryland, correct? Mayor Maryland, right? Uh, who was that? He was fine. I don't know what happened, but um, and then Lincoln Chafee was in it for six seconds, and uh, that was like pretty much it, right? It was a very small field um, because Clinton was a uh, was was perceived as the front runner from the from the get go, and um, I think the the retrospective conclusion, um, which I think has some merit, was that the, that's what the DNC wanted, and the DNC um, it's not like they rigged the elections, right? But they uh, they did some things that maybe were um, not entirely fair to the rest of the field. And so to correct for that, they, in my opinion, went completely overboard um, in terms of, of letting too many people on the stage. The, the first debate, um, which was held, I believe it was June of 2019, uh, the, the requirement to be on national television representing the Democratic Party to the entire world was that you could, you polled 1% in three different polls between, you know, anytime between January and June 
of 2019. Um, and that to me was a really kind of a fateful decision. Um, for one thing, it allowed just complete crackpots onto the stage. Okay, there's uh, no reason <laughs> that uh, lifestyle guru and, and rainbow worshiper Marianne Williamson should have been allowed within 100 million miles of um, the actual, the people who, who had any actual chance of winning the nomination. You know, you've got the former vice president of the United States, the, the future president of the United States, Joe Biden, standing, you know, two podiums down um, from, from someone that, you know, that sells like, uh, I don't know, um, hemp medicine. <laughs> Uh, it, it, you know, actually, probably have medicine's fine. Uh, it's worse, you know, a miracle cure. It's like she's this kind of person, right? Um, I don't think she's like a malignant person or anything, right? But it's like she has no business. She had no, pr profoundly no business being up there. Um, Andrew Yang had no business being up there. Um, Gabbard had no uh, no business being up there. These were all people that were polling one or two percent um, because people were bored and they were like, sure, I don't know, Marianne Williamson sounds good to me. Yes. Um, I guarantee you, give me like a million bucks, um, and I could I could probably get myself to to one percent um, in an open primary. <laughs> you know, uh, if I could run enough ads in enough places, I'd just be like, I'm the fight dirty guy. Vote for me, you know. And I'd probably get like you know 0.97 percent of respondents saying like, Yeah, Ferris guy sounds great to me. Um, and I and I'm the argument I'm making is that I should also not be allowed on that stage. You know what I mean? Like um, the Democratic Party, it's a party, it's an organization, it's a private organization. Okay. Um, they have no obligation to let uh, every single person off the street that has dreams of being president um, and put them up in prime time in what is, in a very meaningful sense, one of the most important opportunities that the party has to refashion its public image, to promote uh, rising stars within the party, to put forward the best face that it possibly can to the public, um, uh, show voters maybe some, some lesser known uh, senators and governors. Um, who have higher aspirations and, and highlight some of the things that they've done. And instead, what Tom Perez and the DNC did was, um, you know, they, they just kind of, they, they like opened the floodgates, let everybody in and created a series of headaches and, and embarrassments for the party that's ongoing. Um, you have Yang who, who lost, you know, who dropped out of the race um, after winning zero contests, uh, went on to run for the mayor of New York City, lost that too. Um, then decided he wasn't a Democrat anymore. Teamed up with Christine Whitman, former governor of New Jersey, and now is is uh, is on par as part of a third party that threatens to be a spoiler against Democrats in upcoming races. Um, you have, I think, the lingering embarrassment of, of of being associated with people like Williamson and Bloomberg and um, Tom Steyer. Steyer and Bloomberg collectively set like two billion dollars on fire running for president that could have been used in a variety of other ways. And then there's Gabbard, right? Um, and Gabbard's, I think lone claim to fame was uh, was being a vocal supporter of Bernie Sanders in 2016 um, and then proceeded to turn into a complete weirdo. Uh, maybe she always was a complete weirdo. I don't really know. Um, but her transformation into like a, a like a Tucker Carlson stand was completed the other day. <laughs> um, and the damage here is like, OK, you're probably like somebody might be like, well, if she only pulled one percent, like, what do you care? You know, like how, how, how important could it be? My position, she went on, she, so she had made this announcement Tuesday. She was on Tucker Carlson that night. Um, and for the rest of her life, she's going to go on right-wing media and be introduced as former Democratic presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. You know, um, and they get to play uh, that, um, the car, you know, when, when, you, when you, you, you hook a fish from the other party and you, you reel him in and it's like, the Republican Party, I didn't leave the Republican Party, Republican Party left me. And she gets to play that game like for the rest of her life. Like uh, Zell Miller, remember Zell Miller from 2004 in the Republican National Convention, a former Democratic senator from Georgia, um, gave this like bloodthirsty speech at the, at the 2004 RNC, you know, former Democratic senator Zell Miller left the Democratic Party. And he's like 400,000 times as serious a person as Tulsi Gabbard. Um, and so they, they, they now have let loose like four or five Cretans on the world <laughs> get to claim that they were candidates for the 2020 Democratic nomination. And, and that's only half of the problem with the way the party conducts these, these primary debates. Um, the, other, the other half of the problem is that they farm it out to media figures, because bring this conversation full circle. Um, they farm it out to networks whose sole purpose in conducting these intra-party debates is to embarrass the Democratic Party by, by getting them to adopt what they think are outrageous positions. 
you know, so the whole framing of every debate, um, all everybody's plans, first question every night, how are you going to pay for it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there. whoa, what a great idea. Pie in the sky. How are you going to pay for it? You know, how, how many is everybody on? Let's do a show of hands. Everybody in favor of nationalizing healthcare? Yes, yes, yes. Right. Um, and so they all they did was they highlighted like the the most, you know, quote unquote, radical positions that the Democrats might have held. I think they pushed some candidates to adopt positions that were further left than they might otherwise have adopted. But most problematically is they are sacrificing the opportunity to present the party to the people on their own terms, right? The DNC should be running its own debates on its own cable channel um, with the moderators of their choosing, with questions of their choosing, right? Like have the candidates debate each other, right? Like I don't want to, I'm not saying you should stage manage the um, contention between the actual candidates, but the party should, uh, because Republicans are never going to have another national debate that they entrust in the networks, right? So like, why should we? Um, and so it's, uh, you're, you're just, you're throwing away an opportunity um, to, to craft an image of the party that can be positive and lasting, um, that can be associated with, uh, with some rising stars in, in the, in the party. And, and instead they just, they promoted these, um, you know, these gadflies, uh, and allowed the media to, to define the narrative of the democratic party in, in what I think were pretty negative ways. So I, I really, um, I, I, by the way, Ben, 100% I was like, I was like you, right? Like <laughs> you were, I, I had my cleared like weeks in advance, you know, like I bought special popcorn. Um, <laughs> it's like, no one call me. I shut off my phone and I just like, you know, you just absorb, uh, the, the beautiful feeling of like people that you generally speaking agree with and who are not horrible sociopaths saying sensible things about public policy. Um, I just wish that there were a lot fewer of them up there. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and by the way, there were some also very funny moments, uh, that we still enjoy. Like when Joe Biden went on that bizarre riff about playing uh, the, record player. The, the record player to your kid, and, and there's some moments. And Tulsi going, you you cited this in your essay. Uh, Tulsi going after Kamala Harris for her uh, policies when she was Attorney General in California, but going after marijuana, uh, which is, by the way, that's a whole other thing. With the problem with Biden and marijuana is I will never understand you talk about a clean clear-cut issue for the democrats to win on and joe biden just can't bring himself to endorse uh the legalization of reefer i cannot understand that uh david and i i hate to think that a republican is going to take advantage of that and, and endorse it and then somehow or other get to bring in all their other bad policies uh, but there, there were some moments. Uh, I, I, I was taking notes of what you said. There are now uh, three candidates that you mentioned who were on that stage, and at one time or another were given some sort of prominence for uh, various things in that summer of 2019, who have now uh, either uh, openly left the, the Democratic Party, denouncing it um, as being somehow or other betraying its goals and values, which I don't understand what they're talking about, uh, because I can't see the Democratic Party being that much different over time than it ever has been. So I don't know when it was better for you. Uh, or they've gone on Fox TV uh, and on Tucker Carlson. So uh, you mentioned Marianne Williamson. She's been on Fox TV and she goes on and makes fun of Democrats. And Tucker Carlson's like, ooh. <laughs> You know, just that nodding he does with that little, little smile. He's so happy. Uh, Andrew Yang has left the Democratic Party, as you said, and now Tulsi Gabbard, and she's a regular on Fox. So, um, I, I'm, I, what impact do you think Tulsi Gabbard will have? I think about this a lot because we've talked a lot about um, Kanye West and the impact he is having uh, on the election cycle. Uh, but what impact do you think Tulsi Gabbard will have? in terms of like the midterms are going forward. The fact that she's no longer a Democrat. Sure. I think, I, I honestly think that her biggest impact is, you know, as part of the right wing propaganda network, you know, uh, like she has no constituency of her own to speak of, you know, like she was polling at 1% for a reason. Um, but she does maybe have a little bit of sway over like the anti-imperialist left, you know, like people who, 
were against the Iraq war. They were against NATO intervening in Libya. And they were, they were, um, you know, against uh, starting World War III with Russia. <laughs> um, and she's, she's able to say to those people, look, you know, at this point, I, we're given, you know, we're giving all these weapons to Ukraine. We're sustaining the war there. We're no different than uh, Bush. You know, the Democrats now are no different than Bush. Like, uh, just, a, just a big war- warmonger. Um, her her uh, announcement leaving the party, the statement said, uh, the Democrats are now an elite cabal of warmongers driven by cowardly wokeism, um, which is really something um, as a set of uh, claims to run together in a single sentence. Um, so that's a, I'm a cowardly woke warmonger, I guess, uh, because... Uh, you know, obviously giving anti-aircraft systems to Ukrainians is cancel culture. Um, I guess we're canceling um, a Russian uh, a genocide or something. I, I don't really, it's like, it doesn't make sense on its own terms, right? But it but it appeals to people, I think, who have a general distaste for American foreign policy. I have a general taste, distaste for American foreign policy, right? Um, but it's a, but it's a stance that, that elides the differences between um, this like completely deranged decision that we made to invade Iraq for no reason um, and and providing some support for a for a democratic country that's under siege by an authoritarian neighbor that happens to have interfered in our own elections um, and uh, and resulted in you know the the elevation uh, of this uh, authoritarian proto fascist maniac as the president of the United States right like uh, I think there's there's good reasons to support Ukraine right there's good reasons to think like hey let's let's avoid nuclear war right like let's not do something that's gonna um, that's gonna escalate things right but like. Um, I think it's a perfectly coherent set of positions to say, like, I was against the Iraq war. Um, I'm, I'm generally anti-interventionist. I think we should have been out of Afghanistan 10 years ago. Um, but I'm not, I'm also not in favor of just like, just pulling all support for Ukraine and, and watching Russia roll over them. Like, I don't think that achieves anything either. So, um, I think Gabbard could, could have a, an impact on the margin there in this election. But I think in the long term, um, she is, is part of this, like, you know, Blexit, demexit, you know, like this, uh, this idea that is pushed relentlessly in the right wing, um, uh, fabulous universe that people are like, uh, you know, bolting en masse from the Democratic Party, like we're losing the black voters and we're losing the Latino voters and we're losing these people and that, um, all of which is like mostly farce, right? Um, but, uh, but can be part of a, a media campaign that contributes to the the ever present Dems and disarray narrative. Right? Democrats in disarray, right? Their former presidential candidates are, are bailing for the Republican Party and joining up with Tucker Carlson to fight uh, the Great Awakening. Um, and uh, so she's the she's this she's she's the perfect vehicle for that. You know, she's 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 relatively young. Um, she's uh, she has a, a modest national profile, um, a big social media following. Um, there's, I think, some people who supported Bernie Sanders in, in 2016 who who had favorable opinions of her and um, I, I might not like realize the sort of weird Glenn Greenwald transformation that she has been through over the last <laughs> three or four years. Um, and so it's uh, it's it's all part of the effort to create the sense um, that the Democratic Party is collapsing, people are leaving it, uh, people are tired of the cancel culture, blah blah blah, which they talk about 24 seven. Um, and so she's, you know, it's not doing anybody any favors. Like I'm, I'm not losing sleep at night over Tulsi Gabbard. Um, but to me it is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a symptom of the, of like elite failure, um, to at least just set some boundaries, um, about who gets to be part of this pageant and, and who doesn't. Yeah, that's well, uh, well put. Uh, I, I do believe and this is a whole topic for another time. I do believe we're dire need of diplomats who could play the role of mediators uh, in wars like Ukraine uh, and Russia. I think we're in dire need of like a Jimmy Carter figure or a Jesse Lewis Jackson figure. I've been saying this over and over again. Uh, and uh, uh, Bill Richardson, I don't know if you remember him, former senator of New Mexico. They, they had credibility in their ability to go before some of the most vile dictators in the world and more or less keep their peace and their cool and their calm talk things down there's always a need for that so the fact that tulsi gabbard had criticized american foreign policy in the past lends some credibility for that role but the (laughs) what she's doing now by becoming an advocate for maga effectively throws that out the window you follow me so there's no so she can't be that candidate 
you know, she sacrificed, I thought, uh, that currency. I don't know who could play that role anymore. I mean, uh, Jesse and Jimmy Carter are both well, well, Jesse's well close to closing in on 80 and Jimmy's in his 90s. So I don't know if there's such a person who exists. Uh, can you think of anyone before I switch topics? Anyone who could play that role in the, in the current American uh, political scene? You know, somebody like John Kerry, um, who's who's also really getting up in years, <clears throat> but I think has a uh, still has a good reputation internationally. He was part of the team that negotiated the Iran deal in 2015. Um, you know, I think some some folks from the Obama administration who might be holdovers or who didn't get hired uh, in, into the Biden foreign policy team uh, might might have like a little bit more credibility with with uh, with Putin. I think the problem is that like, as far as I can tell, nobody knows really how to get to Putin, right? I don't, I don't mean like get to him, like get to him, but I mean, I don't think anybody knows how to reach him um, psychologically because uh, he he's, it's just not clear on what rational basis Putin is operating right now. Um, it's It seems extremely unlikely that the battlefield losses can be arrested or reversed um, without resort to the kind of uh, indiscriminate bombing of civilians that we saw earlier this week when they lobbed a bunch of missiles into Ukrainian cities and, and killed a bunch of innocent people for no reason. Um, it's like the, the task of the diplomats at this point um, is to create an exit ramp for Putin, right? Like, how do we, how do we, how do we deescalate this? And um, I'm, I'm not a, you know, I'm not like a trained Russia expert, so I'm, I'm just speculating here. Um, but this could be a place where a phased drawdown of hostilities might be something worth exploring, right? Like everybody's thinking big, like how can we bring this whole thing to a halt tomorrow morning? Um, and, it, and it may be that some some confidence building measures between the two sides are are required. I think a lot of people in DC are myopic about this in the same way that they're myopic about, about Iran, right? They're like, we're just not going to deal with it until somebody overthrows these guys. Um, and it's like, we're just, everybody's just kind of waiting around for one of the generals to, uh, you know, to make Putin enough where he can't refuse, you know what I mean? Like they, 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 they really want, um, uh, they really want some sort of mafia style execution <laughs> to take place in the inner circles there or the Russian people to, to rise up and overthrow him. But, you know, ever since the Arab spring, I think a lot of these, these authoritarian leaders have, um, have just decided that they actually, they actually will just use lethal violence against large numbers of innocent civilian protesters. Um, and that really changes the calculus because to overthrow, it, it's not like the Egyptian people like broke into Hosni Mubarak's house uh, and said like, you know, you better go, or we're going to kill you. It's that, it's that at some point, the uh, like people in the army and the security services said like, I'm not, we're not going to, I'm not going to give that order. You know, I, I'm not going to order the the murder of, of these, uh, of these protesters. I'm not going to do it. Um, and it seems to me like the, this, there's a process of authoritarian learning um, where, where the authoritarian elites say, like, you know what? The difference between surviving and not surviving is we give the order. Um, and, so, and so Putin is willing to do that. I don't know how he gets overthrown um, unless someone in his, in his inner circle does it. And uh, frankly, the, the history of attempted assassinations of authoritarian leaders from the inside is not, uh, not actually that great. So someone needs to come up with a clever outside of the box solution to, to try to bring this to a, to a close that doesn't involve Zelensky capitulating or, or uh, you know, declaring himself a neutral country that will be disarmed because that's also never going to happen. Right. You, you, uh, you have to remember that Ukraine is also um, has its own agency here, right? Like like the Zelensky has coordinated and spearheaded this like pretty, pretty successful um, pushback against what what was thought to be i think the third most powerful military in the world um and uh he has a lot of leverage now too so the reality is that it you, you know the ukrainians and and the russians are gonna have to get in a room together um and decide what the bottom line is um and that's uh, we can't do that for them you know we can we can help um but just like sort of cutting like what what gabbard and her friends and carlson and uh, all these right-wing nutcases that the Federalists want us to do um, is just to cut off the aid, right? They're like, stop sending them weapons, stop sending them money. We have problems at home. Um, you're just, you're risking World War III for nothing. Um, and I, I don't, you know, I don't think we can do that either, right? That's, 
that would badly damage American credibility. I think it would cut the Ukrainian resistance off at the knees um, and would allow Russia to, to claim, I think, large swaths of Ukrainian territory. Um, and what, you think he's going to stop there or something? You know what I mean? Like, it's not going to solve the problem either. So um, it's just, it's really astonishing to me that like the default position of MAGA, which is, which is really the Republican Party at this point, is, uh, is appeasement to, to, to Russian authoritarianism. And the reason that they that they take in this position fundamentally is that they like it. They like Russian authoritarianism, right? They like traditional uh, religious inflect, uh, you know, hyper masculine, um, hyper militaristic, uh, irredentist nonsense that that Putin is pushing. They look at Russia and they see something they really like. That's why Putin is running uh, commercials um, talking about how you don't have any cancel culture in, in Russia. Like there's a there's a sinking of messages here. And for the first time in my lifetime, right, like uh, one of our two major parties is on is on the side of uh, of brutal authoritarianism, not because it's a compromise you have to make uh, as part of the Cold War because you got to defeat the communists, but because they like it, because they want to see it here, and that's that's really where that's really where this is all headed. Yeah, that was a uh, it's, it's a very scary moment, uh, and uh, I would take one step further. Uh, Putin is a supporter of MAGA, and uh, he used his uh, uh, his apparatus, his spy apparatus, to uh, try to tilt things Trump's way. So it's a mutual uh, pact of support. Uh, it's still, in my humble opinion, we need to use our role uh, to try to convene some sort of talk, as you said. I don't try to minimize the task and the challenge. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's a very uh, difficult situation, but you're absolutely correct. MAGA's, MAGA's more aligned with Putin than they are with Ukraine. And um, <laughs> I've never seen it. I've lived longer than you, and I've never seen anything remotely like it. Definitely out of the Republican Party. Uh, you could argue, I suppose, that Nixon had an affinity for Mao uh, that was stronger than any body else in the country's affinity for Mao. Um, you know, they had this mutual love for each other, which is kind of bizarre, twisted, but I've never seen anything where the whole political party uh, is aligned with it. And I don't know, and this is, I'm going to move on for this, but if uh, a MAGA person was in charge right now as the president, if Trump were the president, would he be uh, supporting Zelensky the way the United Biden is? I just don't know the answer to that because yeah, I mean, it, they would still have to deal deal with the larger issue of who lost Ukraine, which would be a uh, an ongoing political issue in this country. All right, let me uh, close with the second essay you wrote, uh, where you kind of read my mind, and uh, this it, it deals with Ron DeSantis, uh, and the, I talked about this so much uh, the last couple of weeks or so with the hurricane hitting Florida. And all of a sudden, he wants government aid after uh, he didn't support government aid for New Jersey and New York, Connecticut, when they were hit by uh, was it Hurricane Sandy. I, I, the way we name these hurricanes is really weird. Anyway, neither here nor there. Naming hurricanes, I shouldn't go down that path. Um, and it just gets into, uh, you raised this, and I'm quoting you to you, the moral uh, universe of MAGA. And I... I they are so openly hypocritical and inconsistent. Uh, it's fun, and to a certain level, just to point it out. Um, but it's also scary because it's the voters don't seem to hold them accountable for being hypocritical and inconsistent. Case in point, they say abortion's murder, and now they're all supporting Herschel Walker, uh, even though he allegedly paid for an abortion. I always put allegedly in there because he says he didn't do it. Uh, but I, I saw the, the little card, okay? So I kind of believe he did do it. Uh, and his son says he did it. And and they just go, we just want the Senate. I thought it was murder. I, I, what? <laughs> I thought this was murder. So help me out with this, David. What is the, uh, the moral universe of MAGA? I, I think you're right about the hypocrisy, right? Like voters tend not to punish hypocrisy um, because memories are not long and, and, and people don't 
a lot of people don't pay very close attention to politics. So they're, they're kind of in the moment. Um, and so this thing where Republicans like blow a hole in the budget when they're in power. And then as soon as they're out of power, they become austerity hawks. This to me is just like, I mean, this has just been the world I live in for 30 years, but like, it's not even surprising to me. Uh, like if you're like, well, DeSantis voted against uh, hurricane aid when he was a, a congressman, but, but now he favors it. I'd be like, okay, well, that's just typical, like the John Boehner, Newt, Newt Gingrich, um, you know, austerity, hypocrisy, and it stinks, but no one really cares, right? Like what, what really bothers me about DeSantis and Florida in particular, in the, in the way that the modern Republican Party is evolving, is that their opposition to spending and their opposition to, to using aid for, for victims of natural disasters um, doesn't really change with who's in power. It changes in, in terms of who is impacted by the disaster. Um, and so that means that Trump, um, when California was being racked by wildfires uh, in the last couple of years of his presidency, um, he, you, you remember this, do you, do you remember this when he went on these like ranting, you know, ranting and raving about like California's forest mismanagement and, um, didn't want to, didn't want to release aid because California is a, a cesspool of liberals who, who hate him and people who have, uh, who were in Trump's inner circle confirmed that he, had, he, just, he hated California because he voted for Clinton. He just hated them, you know? Um, and, and the reality is like the people that voted against aid for Hurricane Sandy, which really was like a once in a century, uh, East coast catastrophic hurricane, like New Jersey and New York don't, don't normally get hit by hurricanes like that. Um, and it really was a, a rare, and I think, a I don't want to say unforeseeable, but it was a, it was a one in a hundred years kind of thing. Right. Um, and then Congressman DeSantis was like, no, nope, you know, can't just write a blank check for these people that behaved irresponsibly by building on the Jersey shore. Uh, you know, barrier islands, blah, blah, blah. Um, and the reason that he's in favor of hurricane aid now is not because he's in power. Um, it's because Republicans think that people that live in red states are more deserving, right? Like there's an in-group and there's an out-group and we're the out-group, right? Like if, you know, God forbid, Illinois was struck by some kind of natural disaster, which by the way, one of my favorite things about Northern Illinois is that we don't really deal with this kind of stuff. And I never have to evacuate, you know, uh, it's just a personal preference of mine is not to have to evacuate my home every two or three years. Um, but uh, if, you know, I guarantee you if Trump was president and Illinois was struck by some sort of like mega derecho or whatever, I don't know what the, I don't know the worst case scenarios around here, terrible flooding. Um, you know, he, he would uh, like instantly, he would attack uh, J.B. Pritzker, you know, like you didn't dig a big enough hole under Chicago, ding dong. Um, and he would hem and haw and he would, he would make us sweat it out, uh, and if possible, deny the aid to us, um, not because they're against government spending, but because they hate people that live in blue states, right? Like the moral universe of Republicans right now, um, is that there is a, and you know, this all goes all the way back to Sarah Palin. There's a real America and a fake America. And Ben, you and I, my friend, we live in fake America and we're fake Americans, right? Uh, and Florida, people in Florida are real Americans, um, and to be honest, people in Florida have done like way more reckless things with their development than people in New Jersey did. Um, but in, in my mind, I mean, like there's people that are, you know, culpable for the stuff, developers and, and city planners and things like that. But for the most part, the people that are that have that have suffered as part of this uh, hurricane, Ian. By the way, I had a grad school advisor uh, who spelled his name. I haven't talked about this before. And it's, he, oh. he, he, always a great tangent go ahead <laughs> so it's the one person in my, in my whole life who pronounced this name ian and so i look at this hurricane and i'm like yeah man hurricane ian and people are like what are you talking about dude um <laughs> it's like but these people i don't care who they voted for ben you know what i mean i don't care if they're MAGA people i don't care if they're just like the worst human beings on earth they were told that the government would bail them you know like they have a flood insurance or they have the federal flood insurance policy or or they don't like I don't want innocent ordinary people to be ruined for life because they happen to to buy or build a house in, a, in an area that's uh, vulnerable to climate change. Like that's those are policies that have to be changed at the top, right? Like the government has to say, like we're not going to rebuild this stuff, right? Or we're going to pay to move people out of these um, these flood vulnerable areas. And if at that point, you know, if the government's like we're not going to insure you, you shouldn't build here, um, and we won't pay for it if another hurricane comes. That point, I'd be like, okay, you know, send in the rescue vehicles, get people out of there. But no, we should probably not pay for them to rebuild. But that's not the case here. You know, the, the case is that like, there was no like Democrats, there was no Democrat in the country was like, you know what, maybe we shouldn't give the aid to Florida. You know, and that to me is just such uh, a, a, just a simple representation of the asymmetry in our politics, where Republicans have descended into this like hateful tribalism 
Um, whereas like even Democrats who are like uh, really contemptuous of Florida in general, <laughs> you know, and are like, it's the armpit, you know, they post that, that gif of, of Bugs Bunny sawing it off, you know, um, even people that truly hate Florida are like, yeah, of course you got to give aid to Florida, right? Like what's, what's even the question here, right? People get hit by a natural disaster. It's your country, right? These are, these are, these are your fellow citizens, right? Go help them out. What's wrong with you? And you, you just like, don't have that on the other side. Um, and I, I don't know what to tell you. It's really depressing to me. And DeSantis is such a piece of garbage, right? Like voted against Hurricane Sandy aid like five different times in 2012. But I can't put it on a credit card. And now this this like uh, oversized suit wearing Trump lick spittle Kim Jong-un wannabe wants us to bail him out. And you know what? We're going to do it because we're not terrible people. But he is. Yeah. Wow. That's a great riff. That, that, and uh you always have to, you, you got to do the right thing, uh, even if the other side doesn't do the right thing. And I'll remind you, that we did a show, I don't know if you remember this, where we actually analyzed to some degree uh, the Republican platform in Texas. I don't know if you remember that particular oh, show. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was a humdinger. Um, yeah. <laughs> and they say in there, they openly stipulate um, the, the point you just made. They say climate change effectively is a hoax and they don't want to have to uh, make any adjustments for climate change. And then they said, uh, if there is a ravaging hurricane that destroys the coastline of Texas, <laughs> brought on by climate change, uh, we demand federal aid. And then they also said we reserve the right to leave the entire United States. I'm like, well, what? Oh, my God. You want everything. And Yeah. <laughs> I actually have more respect for the Republican congressman from Florida who voted against Hurricane Ian aid than I do for DeSantis, right? Because at least that's a that's a coherent, consistent position, right? We're like, we're just bad people. Um, and if you are an innocent person struck by disaster, we don't want to help you no matter who you are. Um, whereas I think the mainstream of the party has moved to this, like, you know, we help red state people and not blue state people. Uh, you know, I, if I could go back in time and... and I listed like 20 things I could change about American politics. It would be like for the networks to have changed the colors of the states for the parties every four years. Um, so that we didn't have this like red, blue poison, like coursing through our veins. I think it's so destructive. Um, red state, blue state, blue area, you know, blue landslide. Are you team blue? Are you team red? It just contributes so much to this like stupid tribalism, you know, like there's like, there's like tens of millions of Democrats in Florida. There's tens of millions of Democrats in Texas. There's tens of millions of Republicans in California. Just stop with this stuff. You know what I mean? It's just, it's poisoning, it's poisoning us. Oh, wow. That's a, a great place to end the interview because it's a great idea. And I'll just point out the, um, at one point, uh, the Dems were red in a, in a presidential election uh, and the Republicans were blue. And the only reason I know this, other than the fact that I'm a total political geek, is that I remember in 1976, I already, George, uh, Gerald Ford's got two mentions on this show. If it's a drinking show, I'm bombed. Uh, if I take a hit every time I mention, but Gerald Ford against Jimmy Carter, uh, Gerald Ford was watching the elections uh, with his friend, a guy named Joe Garagiola, who was a baseball announcer for many years for NBC. And he was a Republican and good friends with Gerald Ford. Uh, and Garagiola is go blue, go blue. And that's also Michigan. That's where Gerald Ford is from. And he went to the University of Michigan. And I rem I just like, whenever I think of red state, blue state, I go, listen to that way in 1976. Uh, but you're right. That's a great suggestion. Every year, every, every cycle, flip flopping or come up with a different color. <laughs> we got to find some way else. Uh, I don't know, some other way to insult each other. You know what I mean? At least make us work for it. No. Yes. All right, David Ferris, outstanding job as always. He made me laugh in the middle of my tears. I thank you very much. I urge everybody to check out those articles in Newsweek. Just Google his name, Ferris, F-A-R-I-S. The one on Tulsa Gabbard's pretty, uh, pretty funny. A lot of wisecracks in there about the various candidates who are running uh, <laughs> for president back in 2009, Democratic uh, candidates, including a couple of billionaires. I don't know what you guys were thinking. Um, so check it out, David Ferris. Thanks, uh, thanks again, David. Thanks for having me on the show, Ben. As always, it's always a blast. And uh, next time we talk, the election will be nice. So a little election preview show. You know? Oh yeah, we'll do the election previews. Uh, you have to make a prediction about Georgia. Which <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, but I actually, I'm just going to close with this. You know, I, I still say I don't believe he's the dumbest uh, Senate uh, candidate of the last. Uh, even last few years, Tommy Tuberville or what? 
of in Alabama. Wow. God damn. <laughs> uh, and I'm racist on top of that. Um, all right. Very good. David, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.